is Angela Treatlion, and you are listening to Daring Dreamers Radio, supporting you to dream it, dare it, and do it. Daring Dreamers Radio is broadcast to you all the way from beautiful Hawaii, so here's a little bit of sunshine for you. The Daring Dreamers Showcase helps millions of dreamers live and achieve their dreams, starting with you. And today, I've got a fabulous guest. His name is Dr. Joe Dispenza at drjoedispenza.com. And I want to welcome you so much, and thank you for coming on my show today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Angela. I'm so honored. Now, did I get your website right? My website's drjoedispenza, with a Z, dot com. That's what I thought. Thank you. So you have the most amazing background. You're a chiropractor, but you've also really focused in on neurophysiological principles. Give me a kind of a bridge sentence of how you take that to help people expand their potential and live the life that they want. Well, if you, if you accept the idea that quantum physics says that the environment is an extension of our mind, if we truly change our mind, then we should see some evidence in our life. And so that kind of sparked me into studying the human brain. Went back to school, got a degree in neuroscience, and um, basically had to change your mind. Well, isn't that funny? I just I wrote a book called Change Your Mind. <laughs> I totally believe in that myself, and that I am so excited to talk to you today. And usually my first question is, out of all the daring things you've done in your life, what is the most daring thing that you've done? Do you want to answer that one? Sure, sure, that's an easy one for me. Um, in 1986, I got run over by a truck in a triathlon. I wound up breaking six bones in my back and was diagnosed to never walk again. And so the, the radical surgery that they were prescribing for my injuries were, was a, called a Harrington rod surgery because I broke six vertebrae. They wanted to basically fuse my entire spine from the base of my neck to the base of my spine. Whoa. Anyway, four opinions for the leading surgeon in Southern California. I chose to not have surgery. That was pretty daring. <laughs> and, uh, I believe that the power that made the body heals the body. I still believe in that. And, and so I thought if I could just connect with this power, this intelligence, and begin to give it some orders and some directions and begin to interact with it, maybe it would begin to do the healing for me. And that, that, I guess that changed my life from that moment on. Well, now, when you say you started to interact with it, where did you start? Well, you know, I was... Uh, Training every day, I was a healthy person. I had a busy practice and martial arts, yoga also, and I was always very active and very busy. But I went from being very active and busy to being flat on my back in a matter of moments. So the first way I started was I just said, I'm not going to let any thought go by unchecked. I'm not going to let any thought go by that has, that's derived from fear or any doubt or any of those thoughts that kind of slip by our, our uh, analytical mind on a daily basis. So I started with that, and then I reasoned that the intelligence that keeps our heart beating and digesting our food and filtering our blood and organizing DNA and processing 100,000 chemical reactions in every cell in our body for in one second, just because I can't see it or smell it or taste it or feel it or hear it, if I could just begin to understand there was a subconscious mind that was organizing all these things, I was going to give it a picture, a very clear picture exactly what I wanted as an outcome. And if I started creating that picture and my mind wandered to something else, I would start all over it. And so it was kind of a discipline and focused concentration. And after a couple of weeks, I was able to go through the whole picture without my mind wandering to anything else. And when I did, it felt like 
mm, kind of like hitting a tennis ball in the sweet spot. Felt like I connected and uh, started to notice measurable changes in my body. And the moment I started noticing changes in my body, I knew that I was that this this mind was real. Wow. Wow, that is awesome. And so when you talk in the movie, What the Bleep Do We Know?, and What the Bleep Down the Rabbit Hole, you talk about creating your day every day. This has become a pretty famous little segment on YouTube. And people, if you want to go see that, go to idareyouradio.com, and you will find Dr. Joe's write-up of this show on the site there and a link to the YouTube video so you can see it. It's really... Is there a YouTube video? I don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's the little segment where you're talking about creating your day, and then there's three segments where you talk about quantum physics, and they're all really beautiful. Hmm. Well, you know, I think that if we begin to look for feedback in our world, I think the brain learns three steps with gaining information and then getting instruction, and then but for the most important next step is feedback. And so... If we're going to begin to interact with the quantum field and we're going to begin to emulate a greater mind that's the creator, if we can emulate this mind and begin to create and begin to use it as if it was real, we should be bold enough to ask for a sign. We should be bold enough to look for evidence in our world. And it should come in a way that surprises us. It doesn't surprise us. It's already familiar. And it should come in a way that leaves no doubt so that it inspires us to want to sit down and do it again the next day. Oh, I love that. So in other words, you don't just ask for $5, you ask for (laughs) $5,000. I don't ask for any dollars. I just say, I know that it's going to come in a way that that is best for me. Ah, okay. So you haven't really specified the thing that you're asking for. You're asking for an event. Now, when you say you ask for an event, give us an example of that. Well, for certain people, it would be a business opportunity. For certain people, it would be a new experience. For me personally, a lot of times I ask for a sign in nature. That's usually one of the things that I like. So I don't know. I've had birds land on my head in the middle of a conversation. Wow. <laughs> that usually lets me know that I've made contact with that mind. Yeah. Kind of a good sign of feedback. Yeah, a bird actually landed on your head? Yeah. Yeah, right in the middle of a conversation. <laughs> that is so cool. But I have a lot of people who are energy practitioners, and many of them are starting out in business and they don't quite know where to go. What would you say that they could ask for? Now, is that where you would say, you know, give me an opportunity for business or a new client? First of all, I think energy medicine is one of the, and energy psychology is one of the greatest fields that is emerging in psychology present day. And the reason that I think that is because it produces immediate changes way beyond any other therapy in in a very short amount of time. So when we become practitioners and we we become experts in what we do, it's our expertise that draws people into our life. So a person can be an energy practitioner and want more business, but if they're not versed in their skill and they're not sharpening their abilities, then they have their intellectual mind understand one thing and they train their body to something else. in order for us to ever have any changes in our life, we have to have mind and body working together. We have to teach the body what the mind is intellectually understood, and that comes from experience. When we have an experience, every time we begin to apply what we learn or personalize what we learn or we demonstrate what we learn, we have to modify our behavior. We have to actually do something. And when we do something, the end product of that experience is called a feeling or an emotion. That emotion conditions the body 
what the mind is understood philosophically. Now, people who are practitioners, whether they're energy practitioners or surgeons or massage therapists or whatever, the first level is to become an expert. The first level is to have mind and body working together so that when you, when you do your treatment or you do your therapy, you know that you know what you're doing. So that's the first step. Now, after we get that out of the way and the person's versed in what they do, then the next step would be however that person wanted their practice to be, whether it was more patients or more challenging patients or a specific type of patient. Again, their interests should be in service. Their interests should be in helping people. They're, they should get very clear on their purpose. The, the highest form of motivation is called duty motivation or purpose motivation. The lowest form of motivation is called money motivation. Because money motivation gets us selfish and service motivation gets us selfless. And in order for us to interact with the quantum field and create, there's a moment where we have to become selfless so that it can move through us. So getting clear on your purpose is also very important. And then if they want to have a busy practice or a successful practice, they have to begin to not only intend and think that they have a busy practice, but they also have to allow themselves to feel that would feel like because it's the thought and the feeling, the thought being the electrical charge and the feeling being the magnetic charge. The combination of those two creates the electromagnetic field of who we are. This butts right into what I was going to ask you because on your videos here you were talking about making thoughts real and I was going to ask you how do emotions <laughs> fit into that so this is perfect. Okay, well there's, there's two things to say about that. We said that feelings and emotions are the end product of experience. Now, a person can be, let's just use this as an example, a positive thinker. Someone who's thinking positively, that's, they're only using their neocortex, they're only using their thinking brain to think positive. But if they've thought and felt negatively for 20 years, the repetitive cycle of thinking and feeling and feeling and thinking conditions the body over time to memorize that emotional state of unhappiness or guilt or sadness, suffering. So now they have mind and body working in opposition. So now nothing happens to them because they have a duality. And they have their intellect wanting one thing, but their subconscious memory or their unconscious memory is wired to, to suffering or to unhappiness. Same goes for someone who prays. If someone prays with the best intention uh, for change, but if they're praying and feeling guilt, now they have mind and body working in opposition. And we have to recondition the body with the mind. We have to actually allow the process of creation to do exactly what it does best, and that is to move energy in our body. When we're in true creation, we're in a state of joy. We're in love with what we're doing, and we're trying to elongate the moment. We want it to last because it feels so good. It's, that becomes the difference between working at it and playing at it and having fun with it. And my definition of creation has always been the same as when I forget about myself. When we become so involved with what we're doing, or so involved with what we're thinking, that we forget about our association to the external world and people and things. The only thing that's real in that moment is the thought. You can't just have intention, because there's been enough experiments to show that a skillful pair of people who just intend have no effect on a vial of DNA. And if you have people elevate their mood, into goodwill or into joy, and they radiate that, it has no effect on a flask of DNA. But you have them combine those two, get very intentional and very clear, and then move into an elevated mood, the feeling of what it would be like if it happened. 
those two ingredients then have a huge effect on the flask DNA. Boy, that's amazing, isn't it? Hmm. I mean, right? that's just that's like magic. <laughs> that's the idea. <laughs> so we create magic. Well, well, now in your book, Evolve Your Brain, the science of changing your mind, which I have to tell you, I have it by my bedside, and I read a little bit of it every night before I go to bed. Because Most it's, people always say that it's, uh, they have to read two or three pages and take a break. Yeah, it's so full of amazing information, really meaty material. Well, well, you know, some people say, wow, it's a lot of, lot of information, and I always say it says the science of changing your mind. It doesn't say the philosophy of changing your mind. It's yeah. based on science, and, and the book was written for one reason. I wanted people to absolutely understand that neuroscience courts that we can change at any age. And so if I'm going into synapses and circuits and neural growth factor and repetition and all of that, it's only there so that people can begin to see that if they keep repeating the same thoughts and memorizing the same feelings, they'll wire their brain and condition their body to be exactly the way they're thinking and feeling. If they change their thoughts and they unlearn that emotional state, Neuroscience also says that, the, and biology says that there's a dramatic effect in their mind and body as well. Well, now, is that what you call brain plasticity? Yeah, plasticity says that we can change our brain at any moment. Every time we learn something new, we make a new circuit in our brain. That's what learning is. Remembering is maintaining or sustaining those circuits. It's keeping them alive. So plasticity, then, is our ability to learn new things, to actually apply what we learn to have new experiences and to modify our behaviors, to change our habits so that we can do a better job in life. Now, psychology and neuroscience used to say that by the time we're 35 years old, your personality is complete and you're going to turn out like your parents and have a nice life. Oh, no! <laughs> but now they're saying because of the latest research in functional anatomy of the brain and functional scans, that's not true, that we can actually change our brain at any time in our life. Of course, that gives people hope. And instead of talking ourselves down to our lowest denominator, if people begin to gather some information, then they're more prone to actually believe in, their, in themselves and in the Yeah, yeah. Now, you say that when we change our habits, we're actually rewiring the brain. Which comes first, the, the thought, the emotion, the feeling, or is it, is okay. it a package of all of it? It's a very, very good question. So we were talking about thinking and feeling, but if every time we have a thought, we make a chemical, right? So if we have great thoughts or happy thoughts, we make chemicals in a matter of seconds in the brain that make us feel great or happy. So the thought then stimulates the brain so that we can begin to feel exactly the way we were just thinking. Now, once we begin to feel the way we're thinking, we begin to think the way we're feeling, which makes more chemicals for us to feel the way we think and think the way we feel. And this cycle of thinking and feeling and feeling and thinking creates what I call a state of being. We can't think greater than how we feel. Or if feelings become the means of thinking, that's when the person has difficulty changing. To change is to think greater than how we feel. So imagine now a person is thinking unhappy thoughts. They begin to feel unhappy. The moment they begin to feel unhappy, they begin to think more thoughts equal to their unhappiness, which creates this cycle. Now imagine doing that for 20 years. Every time we keep that cycle going, the repetition of that, the redundancy of that thinking and feeling and feeling and thinking, conditions the body over time to memorize that emotional state better than the brain. And any time the, the body knows better than the brain, that's called a habit. So now, once the person is in a memorized emotional state of unhappiness, that they've conditioned their body to be 
smarter than their mind, then it's their feelings that are driving their thinking. So if a person is living on a memorized state of personality trait of unhappiness, they're going to think thoughts equal to how they feel. An example of how the body becomes the mind is, is, is like you can't remember a phone number consciously. You can't consciously remember the number, but if you pick up the receiver and you allow your fingers to dial the number, mm-hmm. yeah. that's because, I mean, how does that happen? You can't consciously remember it, but your body has done it so many times that it knows better than your brain now. And so that memory system, called a non-declarative memory system, that's the unconscious or the subconscious, that's 90% of who we are. And by the time we're 35, those memorized neurological habits and emotional conditionings become who we are as a personality. And that's 90%. So here's the conscious mind, 10%, trying to change 90% of a skill or a habit or an emotional reaction or a behavior or an associative memory. And so now when the person is in that state where the body becomes the mind and they're in a habit, they can try to change it consciously, but the difficulty is, is they're these memorized states are like computer programs. They just run on their own. So you can yell at the computer program all you want <laughs> while your computer is malfunctioning, but it has no effect. Yeah. Now, this is why energy medicine works so well, or energy psychology, or emotional freedom technique, or, or EMDR, or thought freedom, or any of those, because it's working on the unconscious where the memory has been stored. And as we bump the energy out of the body, and we free the body up, then it can reprogram itself and lose the emotional charge. And when we have a memory without a strong emotion, that's called wisdom, right? When we have the memory with an emotional charge, it means we still have some things to learn. Ooh, wow. Okay, so I used to say to people that sometimes if they're asking to do something and they don't know how to do it, they ask your body, your body knows better than you do. So is that incorrect? Where does instinct come in? Well, First of all, I don't believe that human beings have instincts. Those instincts are fixed and rigid and compulsive, universal. You know, we don't all migrate at the same time <laughs> to uh, Southern California or, or, or to Hawaii or wherever <laughs> uh, when it gets cold, although most of us would like to. Would like to, yeah. <laughs> so we don't have those compulsive traits. Now, tissue memory or body memory is important for anything because there's certainly those automatic programs that are in the non-declarative system or the subconscious that actually work very well. And those are walking and brushing your teeth and, you know, speaking a language. And those automatic programs serve us to a large degree. But when we live in stress or we live in survival, the chemicals of stress survival tend to change how those programs function. In other words, the chemicals of stress begin to cause us to act like an amped-up animal with a big memory bank. We start to behave in very predictable ways, and it's those chemicals that bring on self-limiting emotions or negative emotions that are derived from the chemicals of stress, whether it's anger or aggression, whether it's um, disgust or fear or anxiety or pain and suffering and depression. Those are all derived from the chemicals of stress. And so when we start reacting to the external environment repeatedly and we keep activating that primitive system, now the dominance of our behaviors are triggered to begin to do memorized actions, automatic actions, with the simple hope that it's going to help us survive in one way. You can't create, you can't learn when you're in survival. When those conditions arise, we tend to start to move to a lower level of mind. Okay, so that means that in order to change what's happening on the outside world, you have to change who you are, literally, on the inside world. Well, you know, 
I always say, does your environment control your thinking or does your thinking control your environment? Now, that's the age-old question. That's the difference between Newtonian physics and quantum physics. Right. However, this isn't something that you accomplish in, in a weekend. Oh, Joe, why not? <laughs> Darn. <laughs> uh, there's an unlearning process and a relearning process that has to take place. The brain is organized to reflect the environment. Everything we know in our environment is organized in our brain. The people that we, we know and the things we do and the things we own, we all we have a very specific order in our brain that reflects everything known in our environment. So once we begin to react to the environment and the environment begins to stimulate different circuits in our brain, we're basically thinking equal to the environment, or better said, the environment's controlling our thinking so much that we keep everything the same in our life. So then, is it possible then to have the brain and the mind and even the body ahead of the environment? And according to neuroscience, we can actually do that just by the process of meditation or the process of rehearsal. Because we can make thought more real than anything else, in fact, we can rehearse the task or an idea enough times in our minds that our brain begins to change neurologically and chemically. And it begins to organize itself to reflect the experience before the brain, the mind, or the body's actually had the experience. Now, if we believe then that in quantum physics that the mind or the observer has to be present in every experiment, if the brain looks like it's had the experiment and the mind is organized to reflect that the experience has happened in the brain, then technically the experience should find us. Now, that takes a certain amount of will and practice, but it's certainly possible. The experience finds us. So it's kind of like when the teacher's ready, the student shows up. <laughs> exactly. Well, now, I practice EFT, and I teach my students that when they clear their energy, it's not like they've cleared anger out of their system. They've cleaned up the energy, and now they've got that energy to use in a creative way. Would, would you agree with that premise? I do, because I believe that energy is neither created or destroyed. So it's just how we organize it. Some people organize their energy really well in fear, other people organize their energy really well in anger. Other people organize their, you know, their energy really well in anxiety. The truth is that emotions are energy. If you want to give the literal translation, is emote is to move energy, right? So, yeah. So if we're memorizing anger and it's stuck in us, then we can have all the attention in the world, but if the energy hasn't moved, it doesn't serve anybody. But you can unorganize that energy or disorganize it and reorganize it with the intent and move into a lifted state, whether it's will or love or freedom or opening or create a whole new emotional memory. And now that energy can literally be transformed. That's getting out of the way. Yeah, on one of your videos, you were talking about the skill of observation. Tell us how that fits in with, with changing your energy. Well, if we accept in quantum physics that mind has some effect on the nature of reality, our observation... The observer has to be present in every quantum physics experiment. Well, if we accept that understanding, then it's, we'd have to say then, we know that it works for the very tiny. We know that if, you, if the, the observer looks for an electron or we measure where an electron is, everywhere that we expect it to be, there it appears. So if there's some observer that energy responds to. So most quantum physicists will say, well, yeah, that's true, but you know, this whole idea of creating reality is a different story because quantum physics says, but it only works for the very tiny, you know, electrons, particles, and nanoparticles, but it doesn't work for the very large. And then, of course, the question is, 
Maybe we're just poor observers. Maybe we can get better at this concept called observation. Maybe we can get the mind and the brain working better, and if we can make the mind and the brain work better, maybe we'd have more effect over the nature of reality. That sure makes sense. So you have to get into a, a habit of slowing down. I mean, it seems like we move so fast and we're so bombarded by stimulation that it's really hard to go from one nano moment to the next nano moment without having five miles in between. Mm. And it, yeah, and I call that chronic distractibility. I think that's the story of most of our lives right now. Well, technology doesn't seem to help, you know, I mean, between computers and cell phones and and people get very comfortable with changing attention spans. It's like it sets up an expectation for things to move fast. Yeah, exactly, and that's exactly what happens. You literally train your brain to have shorter and shorter time frames of attention. So then when it comes for a person to sit down and begin to ask themselves some important questions, without that stimulation, they can't think for themselves. Thinking for yourself is really what meditation is all about. You know what, I think that, that's one of the reasons that people have gotten so overweight because I know that until I caught it, I would sit down for a meal or for a snack and I wouldn't really eat consciously. I would think. And it was like my only downtime that I could spend with myself other, other than my morning meditation without guilt. Right. And so once I caught that, now I give myself time to think. But I can see how people sit there and just kind of go into automatic in order to just kind of go over things. Right, and you know, what's really happening though on a physiological level is that that feeling, that guilt or that overwhelm or that fear, whatever the person has been confronting in their day and, and that emotion that's lingering, you know, we tend to do anything we can when we're desperate to make that feeling go away, right? So for certain people, then, the best way to make that feeling go away is to eat. And when they eat, it changes their internal chemistry. And for moments, they don't feel that emptiness or they don't feel that unhappiness. So they want to eat more or they want to drink more or they want to take more drugs or they want to shop more or they want to watch more TV or play more video games, anything to run away from that feeling. So the process of transformation, the process of change, requires just the opposite, no longer becoming dependent or attached or addicted to something outside of it, but to actually stop and look at that feeling and begin to unlearn that feeling. Now, that's an uncomfortable process, and not a lot of people want to do it, but the ones that actually make the effort to unlearn that state freeze them up because now they move that energy. That energy is no longer coagulated in their body and in their life, and the energy can be used as raw materials to create a whole new life. When you start working on something yourself and you find yourself in an uncomfortable feeling that, let's say your habit was candy bars, you find your hand going out to a candy bar, what is the first thing you would do rather than reach for the candy bar? Well, this is one of the things that I teach in my workshop extensively, and that is that anytime we break a habit, we have to make conscious what was once unconscious. So the unconscious act of reaching for a candy bar, if we've done it enough times, was an acceptable phenomenon that went right past our conscious mind. All of a sudden now when we're going to stop that, we're going to break the chemical continuity that we create from the dependency or the expectation or the anticipation of eating the candy bar. But let's get a little bit more practical now. What if the person wants to overcome guilt? If they've memorized that emotional state for 10 years and they've practiced it and thought and felt so much that their body has become their mind, 
then by living in the emotional memory of guilt, they're going to think unconscious thoughts that are driven by that feeling. They're going to behave with certain unconscious automatic programs that are derived from that feeling. And that feeling is going to elicit other feelings, whether it's unworthiness or feeling bad or negative or whatever. So in order to change, we have to make conscious the unconscious thoughts, the unconscious behaviors, the unconscious feelings, and make them conscious so then as we begin to make them conscious, we have more control over them. Now, if a person was truly interested in changing, they'd have to have a plan. So if they began to, when they had their morning meditation, meditation, the exact translation in Tibetan means to become familiar with, to make known. So if you become familiar with your unconscious thoughts, your unconscious actions and behavior, and your unconscious feelings, and you become conscious of them, you bring them to the surface, you're meditating. The word meditation in Sanskrit means cultivate, to cultivate, to dig up the old self and to plant a new self. So if they began to rehearse in their mind how they were not going to act, how they were not going to feel, and plan that, the act of planning literally would change the brain. It would literally begin to force the brain to fire in new sequences, in new patterns, and in new combinations. And whenever we make the brain work differently, we're making a new mind. Mind is what the brain does. Mind is the brain in action. So now the person has more control. The second phase, of course, is all about reinvention. It's all about creation. Now, what is a better ideal of myself? What is a better expression of how I come? And as we begin to think how we're going to act, how we're going to think, how we're going to feel, how we're going to perform our daily activities and what we're not going to do, the exact same thing happens. The exact process begins to reshuffle neurons in new ways. And that then becomes the platform of who that person will ultimately come. Okay, so let's use the candy bar example again. Let's say that, that I've had a habit of reaching for that candy bar. Now I'm going to think about, well, instead of reaching for the candy bar, I'm going to ask myself, what's really going on here? And I'm going to sit down and meditate on that for a second and then choose a new behavior. Would that be what you're talking about? In a sense, but I think what would have to happen first, for the candy bar addict, they would have to say, Okay, so just before I eat a candy bar, what is the feeling that I have? I'm feeling really anxious. I'm feeling really unworthy. I'm feeling really unsure. I'm insecure. Now, if we're going to change any addiction, the addiction is driven by that emotion that a person is running from. So, again, we go back to whatever that emotion is so then we can begin to make conscious all the actions that some external thing from us, like a candy bar or a gambling or shopping, whatever people do, that external event produces some internal chemical change. That's why we notice it. That's why we like it. So that external thing producing this internal chemical change makes the feeling go away. And because it makes the feeling go away, I associate that thing with making this feeling go away. And a couple cycles of that, and the condition then literally bypasses the conscious mind, just like the dog salivating when we ring a bell. The same process happens. We begin the expectation of the candy bar, the expectation of gambling, actually starts the chemistry to actually change automatically in the body before the experience happens. The body begins to become ready for it, just like the dog begins to salivate. That is the difficulty in change. That is the hard part of change. We have to be Come present. We have to teach the person another strategy, another way to be. And they have to memorize that strategy. 
so well that they can make it look natural and easy. So the expectation of the ending of the uncomfortability is what starts producing the chemicals that brings us the so-called pleasure. Well, yeah, it goes something like this. On an unconscious level, you start feeling anxious or you start feeling insecure. You don't say, I feel anxious or I feel insecure. You just feel the feeling. And then the moment you feel that feeling, your brain runs through, unconsciously now, what it's going to do to make that feeling go away. And the image of a candy bar pops up in your head. And the next thing you know, you have your face in the fridge or in the drawer. Because just like the several exposures, the dog has several exposures to the food and then they ring a bell. After a period of time, they ring the bell and the dog automatically does it. That same anticipation begins to physiologically start to alter the body and start to crave the candy bar because it already knows that the candy bar is going to make the body feel better. How's that? That's perfect. So in order to change that, like you said, we have to become really present and stop and, and ask ourselves, what is it we're feeling? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Actually, it does, it's just not enough to do that. We have to actually have our meditations and have our contemplations and have our reflections and rehearsals in the morning be all about how we're, we're going to actually plan how we're going to do it differently so that the brain is already changing before the experience happens, and so does the body. Oh, that's really exciting. So that's where energy technology come in, too. Is I've used that to handle chocolate. I didn't even look at it as food anymore. You know, I did EFT on it for, oh, I don't know, maybe half an hour, and then it was gone. So that would be a rehearsal, would it not? It's like and a shift and a rehearsal. Yeah, there's a physiological change that takes place with the EFT, but um, it's similar. Whew. It's powerful, isn't it? Well, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I think about this stuff all the time. Yeah. (laughs) So you you say in in one of your, I I think it was the fireside one where you were talking about your day, you mentioned that you were infecting the quantum field with your thoughts. I thought that was such an unusual thing to say. Mm. I just came out, you know, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where that came from. I mean, I've gotten gotten all kinds of comments about it. it was the word that came out in the moment, but if I thought infecting in the moment because it grows, you know, when you make it, when you infect, when you penetrate the field and you drop a seed and you have conviction and you have clarity and you have a movement of energy, if you have all the right ingredients, it spreads, right? It begins to have a mind of its own. Like you plant a seed in the ground, it only takes a little bit of time and energy to get it past its vulnerable stages, and then it's going to do what it does on its own. Yeah. So that yeah. was the word choice in the moment. I'll probably <laughs> say a different word. Well, I don't know. I, I thought it was so, to me, it was like a wake-up. You know, it wasn't saying you were intentional, you were determined. You know, those words have been so overused, but infecting means that you actually consciously created something in the quantum field and you're going to plant it there and watch it grow. It it was really a very poignant, if you will, statement Mm. because it meant that I had the power to do that. I'm not just a powerless little victim of, oh, the universe is happening to me. I can actually create, I can cause things in the quantum field. Sure. Yeah, now you're getting it right. And, you know, infect actually had two definitions for me at the time. It meant infect like an infection, and infect like process of moving in, like instead of affect. So I was thinking of it that way. Yeah, 
Yeah, interesting. And you also talked about increasing your will and your sincerity. I'd, I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about that. Well, let's see how I can say this. I think there's, again, two components to us. The, the emulation of the front field, the emulation of this greater mind has both a willful component. It's the movement of moving out and creative process. That's the will. And then there's the sincerity of the process that's required to to make manifest, give form And so, again, those two ingredients for me are quite important because I think that if you're insincere and you have will, it doesn't mean anything. But if you have sincerity and you have no will, it's nothing either. So that combination of two, you know, will to me is kind of believing in thought more than believing in your circumstances. And it doesn't mean that it has to turn into pushing and, and repelling and trying to get your way. But it's a sustained state of mind. That's how I see it. And sincerity is almost like a trust in, in knowing that there's going to be an outcome without having to push, you know, without having a hold on, but a sincerity in that you can be present and you can be alive and you can uh, trust uh, in an outcome. Whoa, that's a big issue for a lot of people. Well, you know, the quantum law says, you know, really this. And you believe in a future that you can't experience with your senses. But you've thought about it enough times in your mind that your brain's actually changed as a result of it. If you can, then your brain is no longer a record of the past. But now it's a map to the future. Ooh, ooh, I love that. Say that again. <laughs> <laughs> I said the, quant- the quantum law says that can you believe in a future you can't see or experience with your sense? But you've thought about enough times in your mind that your brain has actually changed. And if you can actually do that, your brain is no longer a record of the past, but back to math. Wow, that is so powerful. Now, where does the divine come in? Would you say that the divine would be like the unconscious unconscious? <laughs> Let's make it user-friendly. It's that invisible force that's giving life to the tree outside your window. It's the invisible force that's keeping your heart beating. It's the invisible energy that causes the planets to rotate around the sun. It's the invisible field that exists between two points in space. It's what uh, organizes everything. It has an organizing intelligence with a will, and it has a loving component that, that keeps things into form. And there's nothing mystical about it. Everything visible is the projection of it. And so because it has a mind that's so much bigger than our mind, you know, if our will could match its will, or if our mind could match its mind, or if our love for life could match its love for us, that's when we begin to see reflections in our world. So I always like to tell people to keep it really simple. It's what's orchestrating all of the events. And if we can move into a level of mind, that exists beyond time and beyond space. You know, the frontal lobe allows us to do that. The frontal lobe allows us to forget about time and space. And when we become so involved in a thought that the frontal lobe lowers the circuits in the brain that perceive uh, sensory feedback from the environment and sensory feedback from the body, and even our concept of time, the circuits in the frontal lobe cool off, that's the moment that we're actually executing free will. That's when the moment where we're actually demonstrate that we are intentionally organizing 
a new possibility. When the frontal lobe works, we're speculating outcomes. We're, we're examining possibilities. And so when we are able to do that and become immersed in it, then the field should begin to reorganize itself in some way. Now, it may not happen right away, but with continual practice, things start to change. There's a, a percentage of the population that, that are called hypersensitive people, and these are usually artists, musicians, performers of some kind, and, and would you say that those people have more of a contact with, with that divine inspiration than, than most people do? I mean, is that where that's, that's coming from? Well, I'll give, you the, I'll give you two answers, okay? The first answer is the neuroscientific answer, and that is that the brain is divided in half. We have two hemispheres, the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere, and they always used to say the right hemisphere was the creative brain and the intuitive brain and the emotional brain, and the left hemisphere was the, like the logic and reasoning and linear brain. But some of the latest research in neuroscience shows something quite different, that in fact the right hemisphere processes cognitive novelty, newness, creativity, and the left side processes cognitive routine things you memorize become familiar. So in a sense, we have this dual processor that allows us to learn new things and store it into familiar memories. And so artists and musicians, because they're always in the process of cognitive novelty, because they're always in the creative mode, they tend to lateralize more time on the right. They force themselves to stay in the unknown. And as a result of it, the process of going inward and trusting an inner signal or an inner impulse, once they then organize that creative process into a song or a picture, then when it lateralizes over to the left hemisphere, the left side of the brain, there's actually a release of energy, especially in the left frontal lobe, which is called the happy spot. They have a sense of ecstasy or a sense of joy or a sense of richness and awe and wonder that they were able to actually follow this stream of consciousness. So that becomes a very, very nice model for evolution because that's exactly what we should be doing with our life and with the nature of reality. It's the same process of creation. So that's the neuroscientific definition. The spiritual definition is that those people who tend to go inward to create, they have to do an amazing thing. And they have to literally lose track of time and space. And when we do that properly, when we forget about ourselves, creative process, that is the moment the brain not only reorganizes itself, but that's the moment that that field is moving through us. It is mo literally moving in us, through us, out of us. When we're living in routine and memorize habits, we're actually stopping that energy or slowing that energy, freezing that energy. And that's the, the byproduct of that, of course, is nothing ever happened. Wow. Well, being an artist myself, I, I, I know that happy spot really well. <laughs> yeah, most artists do. And yeah. I think, you know, if I, you know, just off the cuff here, if you think about great artists in, in history, you know, the other thing they also did very well is that they loved to spend time alone. Mm -hmm. They didn't like to organize their energy into social engagements because then they would become like everybody else. And they had to maintain a sense of individuality by not blending with typical social mores at the time because they know that when they did, they lost it, and they lost that skill. Yeah. Yes, I, I find that myself. I'm really a loner. So how does 
somebody who hangs out in that, I like to call it an empty state, because that's what you have to be in order to channel that stuff through. How does somebody who hangs out there a lot successfully integrate with what people call the real world in order to function? Well, the functionality is the key. I mean, I personally think, for example, schizophrenics are very close to their subconscious mind. They have a very thin veil between this world and the other world. And a lot of the studies in science have proven that people are actually, the auditory hallucinations are actually being registered on the organic membrane. So, you know, they're hearing something. But the problem is, is that when we have those experiences and we can't integrate them into our beliefs or our perceptions, they don't serve us at all. They, they serve us no good. So the process of integration is methodical. And I think that's why, in the beginning, it takes so much of our effort to make something happen, because not only is it a test of our sincerity and our test of will, but we have to continuously reformat our thinking, re rethink our philosophies, re-examine our beliefs to see if, to review if uh, what we need to keep and what we need to throw out. And when we finally start to have the breakthroughs, I think we're already in the realm of functionality within kind of a methodical step-by-step approach. And if it comes too fast or if it comes too quick, it could produce just the opposite. It could make people afraid. and Yeah, because it'll produce the wrong chemicals and we're not used to those. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I could talk to you all day, <laughs> but I see we're running out of time. Is, is there anything you'd like to add before we sign off? Some secret tip that you could give us. <laughs> I think if everybody spent a moment every morning asking themselves before they started their day, what's the greatest ideal of myself that I can be today? And they began to just think about it, plan their actions, feeling, and got up with that little new frame of mind. Hopefully they would something change in life. I love that. What is the greatest ideal of myself that I can be today? Good start. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. This has really been a pleasure for me. I hope it has been for you. Oh, it was fun. I so appreciate your coming on my show today. You're welcome. I want to remind people that your website is drjoedispenza.com. That's D-R-J-O-E-D-I-S-P-E-N-Z-A.com. And you've been listening to Daring Dreamers Radio at idearyourradio.com. I am so glad you could be with us today. I want you to remember, please, don't take normal for one more second. Be audacious, outrageous, bodacious, and as bold and as alive as you can possibly be. Dream it, dare it, and do it. And I'll see you next week.